everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, here with Dan Allen. You! And you may notice that we made some upgrades to our, our audio quality, our microphone setup. So hopefully going forward, um, the audio will be that much less distracting for those of you who care about such things. Mm. But anyways, and some um, some might not even notice. Like some might myself. not even notice. Like if you're like Dan, you won't even notice the audio audio quality difference. But anyways, we're hoping that that is more enjoyable for those of you who do. But we're continuing our series on how to read the Bible. Um, right in Dan's wheelhouse. This is something that Dan loves to teach and help others do is learn how to read their Bible better. And so remind us, Dan, of what we've covered so far. Uh yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, we've covered the path of faithful interpretation, yep. kind of going around the the, the four corners, the square. Uh, so st- wanting to stay on that path. Then we did uh, understanding and standing under the scriptures, really focusing on a heart posture of we want to not only understand the text, but we want to stand under the text and bring a heart posture like that. Um, and then we, what did we do? That was uh, it. That was okay. all we did. All right, yeah, yeah. All right, so this is number three. Dan is Good. teaching this in person, so he, so you'll have to pardon the fact that he's confused because he was, uh, you're probably on two different sequences yeah, right, between right. podcast and okay. in-person class. But yeah, today, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so this this week we will do uh, Their World First. And so let me start with a, a quick illustration. Okay. This is an actual t-shirt that I bought Danica uh, years ago. I think okay. I bought this in 20, 2009 or so. Oh, boy. Uh, so the shirt says, God is Honduran, dot, 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 minute 94. So I, I actually bought this in Honduras. Okay. So we were there. Uh, God is Honduran, dot, 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 minute 94. Minute 94. What do you, just try to talk what you think maybe that shirt um, I mean, about. I used to play soccer, so my mind goes to maybe like extra time in soccer because mm-hmm. a game of soccer is 90 minutes and they add, you know, normally around four minutes or less of extra time. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So my guess, this is where my mind went, is that they're like saying God worked a miracle when the Hondurans won, scored some goal in the 94th minute. And I'm probably totally off. No, I think I, 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 I don't remember the exact story. It's something like that. Oh, is it? I think it was actually another team scored in ninety in the ninety fourth minute, and that helped Honduras advance. So I'm actually right. Yes, that is right. That is correct. But if yeah. you ask most people who aren't That's right. soccer no, people, totally. they would have never figured that yeah, out. Yeah, totally. And actually, kind of when weird, I actually. when I have used that one in, in the past as an illustration, I think the ninety minute ninety four kind of gets pushed to the side, and people are trying to figure out God is Honduran. Yeah, right? yeah. like what? It, because you really have kind of two main options. Either somebody is like teaching a theology that's saying like God is has Honduran origins yeah. or something, and right? And they're like, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> or it's sort of like a, kind of a joke, right? Like right, it, yeah. God must have done this miracle. Like he, he must really like be Honduran. Like people in our context, you know, like joke, I, at least I think they're joking, that God is a Packer fan or something. Sure, like yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's right. Um, Sorry I ruined your illustration. No, totally. No, what I, <laughs> what I like about the illustration is one, I don't even remember the story. Uh, fully, but I can still get enough. I remember it enough yeah. to actually know that this is not, it's not a serious shirt. It's not seriously trying to make a claim that God is Honduran. Right. Um, so I know a little bit of the context, but not fully. And clearly you were able to pick up that as well and still get the sense of what the shirt is saying. Um, but the point of this um, principle is that every text has a context. Like yeah. it has some sort of a historical context that it's coming out of, and we will understand the passage better and apply it better if we know the context first or if we enter into their world first. Yeah. Um, so this, this comes with a picture, and I'll try to explain it um, like we did last time. So if you think of a triangle, at the top you have the text, uh, so you can either write text or uh, draw a picture of the Bible. Uh, on the bottom right-hand corner, you have us today. On the bottom left-hand corner, you have them and then. Right? Okay. So the audience, yeah. right? So you have at them, the top, you have text. Them and then, you said. Yeah, them or then or them and then. Either way. Either yeah, way. Yeah. Um, so at the top, you have the text. Bottom right, you have us today. Bottom left, you have uh, them and then or then or then. Uh, now, oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we want to go from the text right to us, right? So that we want to draw that line going from the, the top over to the right-hand corner. 
but that's that's dangerous because yeah. if we don't understand the context, we might totally misapply. So if somebody came to that shirt and actually thought it was a theological like statement that God is Honduran, that would be a, a totally off. It'd off be of, a very yeah, like, it'd be a misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what we want to do is first try to understand <clears throat> their world. So the the way that the path to this is to go first down to the left, to the left hand corner, to us, and then and then make a way over to us today. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. All right. Um, so now there is one little other piece in the picture, and we're going to use Ruth to illustrate this. Um, at the bottom left-hand corner where it's then and them, I like to put a little bit of a small arrow uh, and another dot off just to the right and also put first audience. Because what happens in a book like Ruth that we'll take a look at, Oh, sure. you have the context of the story, but you also have the context of the first audience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This can be sometimes can be confusing for yes. people to keep yeah. this in mind. Yeah. yeah. Talk about that. Like, yeah. So, like, when we think about the context, um, mm-hmm. you're reading Ruth, I think it's natural for people to think, you know, well, one, it may not be natural for people to ask the question of context, period. But if you've mm-hmm. had some sort of um, training or help, you know, reading your Bible, you're probably geared to think, okay, what's the context within the story of Ruth? Yeah. Like yeah. within its own narrative. Yeah. You know, what are things, what are some of the context of things that would have been happening in that story mm-hmm. itself? And which, which is the a right thing to do. Totally. Yep. yep. But an additional setting is to think, well, who was the book written to? You know, yeah. it wasn't written to the characters in the story. Right. It wasn't written right. to Naomi. It wasn't written to Ruth. It wasn't written to Boaz or the, the women that come in at the final scene or anything like that. Um, it was written to, and you got to fill in the blank. Yes. And so that it may have been, with different books of the Bible, it may have been, you know, decades, centuries later or things like that. And so they're going to have their own context. Um, yeah. So outside of Ruth, it could be like, you know, is this book... Um, it may be written about the Israelites when they're not in exile, but mm-hmm. it might be written with a view to Israelites in exile. And mm-hmm. those are going to have different contexts. Mm-hmm. And so how would someone in exile receive this? Book? Right. Yeah. So like, kind of like two different contexts, both the context yes. of the actual narrative and then the context of the audience that's that's the original recipient of the writing, if that that's makes right. sense. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, so we're working on the book of Judges to prepare for next year and that's that's a question that sometimes the first audience isn't as clear sometimes the actual context of the story is a little bit easier yeah uh, but sometimes figuring out that first audience is a little bit more yeah. difficult so as we've like so for judges for example you know the context of the actual narrative is the period of the judges of yep. these deliverer type yep. figures um as we've narrowed down the timing of when the book would have been written and then therefore likely who it was written to, it'd be more like within, what do we say? Kind of like the early, early monarchy. Yeah. Uh, kind of after like Saul. Yeah, probably after Saul and David's, David's kind of getting on. on the scene. Yep. So obviously those are going to be different settings. Yep. You go from a time where there was no king. The book talks about there was no king in the land. And now it's, but it's written, being written to people where there would have been a king. Yeah. And so like you obviously, you want to take in, the reason why that matters is you want to take into consideration um, not only how you understand the narrative itself, but what sort of influences would have been going on in the life of those um, who are receiving right. receiving yeah. the message of the book. Yeah, and then and then you can see, okay, not only am I understanding the story if I'm looking at the historical context in the story, but then I'm asking that question, why does the author organize the story this way to communicate a particular message to his first audience? Like for judges during the time of David, like why why does he orchestrate the message that way? Yeah, to tell give a message to the people of uh, of Israel at that time. Right. So, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, why 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 is this important to begin with? So we'll just right for now we'll just kind of put both of those together: the context of the uh, the actual story as well the as the, the, the context of the audience. So what, why do we think that historical context is essential for our reading? Yeah. I'm reading a book right now called, I think it's called Reading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Oh, yeah. It's which one of my like, favorites. Yeah. It. it would illustrate this kind of principle well. Like we, yeah. well, one of the principles is that we, maybe even in ways that we're not aware of, yeah. bring our, we are, we're, we're not cultureless. It's not like we read the Bible and they have a culture or, you know, you know, um, even like minorities within our own country, they have a culture and somehow like the dominant culture is not a culture. Like we have our own yeah. cultural assumptions. And so like it's good for us to be aware of that because when we come to scripture, we could be unknowingly importing certain expectations yeah. onto the text that are not there or missing 
mm-hmm. um, expectations that are there that we're kind of uh, we're, we might be oblivious to because we're yeah. not able to notice it as easily. And yeah. so just being aware of um, those. Well, and then why does even that matter? I guess the 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 fundamental answer to that is that um, the Bible is a cultural book. It's a book mm-hmm. that is presented within the forms of the cultures of the time. Um, obviously having a, having a transcendent message, um, but nonetheless, you know, a book like Judges, a book like Ruth, the epistles, all these things, they're shaped by those particular contexts yeah. and those particular people. And so the messages take the form of kind of those cultural frameworks. Yeah. And so we have to, in order to understand the message as it was originally intended, we mm-hmm. have to be aware of those cultural factors. Yeah. 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 That, that is a really great book. Um, you know, the idea of that there's things we might import into the text or just gloss over because we're not even aware that mm-hmm. it's it's a detail there that the original audience would have picked up really fast. Yeah. Did you get to the part where uh, one of the one of the authors gives the example of sharing um, the prodigal yeah, son? Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. if you Yeah. Remembering. I'm trying to remember all the details, but essentially he shared it was like he shared the same he did the same exercise in different contexts. Yeah, I think one was Russia, I believe, and one was here in the States. <clears throat> yeah, something like that. And and essentially, like, where is that? So the prodigal son, there's a mention about, I want to say, like, this even shows the fact that I'm a Westerner, is like at some point in the prodigal son oh, yeah, parable. Yeah. Don't don't give it away, totally. All right, okay. yeah, go, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. so basically... First he does the first he does the exercise here, or at least in the telling. Yeah, story. I think he basically tried. If I remember correctly, maybe you remember differently. It's like he he tries to have people recount the prodigal yes. son. Like maybe so they, they read the yep. read it, and then he just has people try to recount. Yeah. Um, like the details. Yeah. And so they has, classroom setting, they yeah. read it all together, then they like close their Bibles, and then they retell the story. Yeah, trying to include as many details as they could. Yes. And like yeah. people in our context, um like almost unanimously left out a detail yes. that people in other contexts almost unanimously included right. and highlighted. Right. And it even like, even it just shows like my own, like, I don't know if I would, uh, yeah, I probably I, I lost totally over agree. it. And like, totally even agree. thinking about it now, I'm like, I don't even know where that is in the story. Right. Right. Um, I think I, I think I can, I think I know now. Um, but it's the idea of there being a famine, like the right. prodigal son experiences a famine. Yeah. And so I think like he was, so like some, like he was in one context where they had just experienced yeah. famine. And even if they hadn't immediately experienced the famine, like their, their parents or whatever, like yeah, it was it's, more, it's in the culture of famine right. will destroy everything. Whereas like in our country, you know, like California could have no rainfall for who knows how sure. long, but we're a part of an industrial nation yeah. where we can supply Pipes them water food. Somehow. Yeah, That's right. Like, they're not running out of water over there. And so like our context is different. We're much more sort of immune to the effects of those things. Right. And so, yeah, it was just, um, the, it shaped a little bit of the way they read the story. Like we tend to think of the prodigal son primarily in terms of his rebellion. Yeah. But they read it with a, a, a an additional highlight of like the devastation he faced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. I feel like this is a good illustration. One for a, a key detail that gets missed, but you're also not going to totally misread the story by not picking that up. Sure. But yeah. it will colorize the text significantly, right? All of a sudden, his situation goes from bad to extremely dire. Like, wow, like this, this is over, yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah, I feel like that's a, that, that book. I f- really feels like it felt like helped get a lot of these categories in my brain. Yeah. Um, the, I, th- I think one of the th- dangers almost, if you're reading that, you can, you can feel very unsettled yeah, for, yeah. for a time. Cause like, you start realizing, like, can like, I Whoa. read and understand anything <laughs> right. now? Yeah. yeah. So I really wouldn't, <laughs> I, in one sense, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't want this, this principle to be overemphasized as if you can't understand the text unless you really understand all the context. Yeah. Cause by and large, you can understand most things yeah. and at least get the sense of what's going on. There will be some key details. We can always learn more in a passage, uh, especially, you know, when you get into like first, second Kings and you're traveling to different lands and stuff. There's, you know, if you're telling a story that you went from Milwaukee over to, you know, Madison and passed through a land or something. If you said, if I said I was going from Madison, uh, Milwaukee to Madison, but I had to take a stop in Chicago. Like, you, <laughs> like you'd be what? like what like that that's this not doesn't how line that up, works right yeah <laughs> um but if if you were not from here you wouldn't think anything of that yeah say so, you're from like washington state and yeah. you're like oh i guess chicago isn't on the way yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so there's um there are key things that 
you would just automatically pick up. But in general, you're not going to totally misread the story. There are instances where that could happen. Sure. So yeah. we do want to we want to take it serious, but not get really nervous about yeah. it. And I think probably the broader um, like kind of philosophical influence of today, like in prior eras where there's a lot of influence of kind of enlightenment mo- modernist thought, people had a really high confidence in their own ability to reason and mm-hmm. figure things mm-hmm. out. Now with it, and, and that obviously had negatives to it. Yeah. Now with the in more influence of postmodern thought, um, the negatives is that you can fall into like an absolute skepticism. But the mm-hmm. positive mm-hmm. is there's mm-hmm. positives to postmodernism too, or the influence of like not assuming you know everything. And, yeah, yeah. and knowing that there are cultural influences, that you bring your own baggage. So finding the finding that proper place of entering with a text of a sense of a humility that maybe I bring my own assumptions or maybe I'm missing things. But also not mm-hmm. like utter devastation that you can't actually understand a yeah. passage. Yeah, that's here. right. Like that's a dangerous yeah. place to be. Yeah, that's Another good. illustration I've heard um, or used that I think is helpful, a little bit different, kind of thinking of the epistles a little bit more, mm-hmm. is like if you've ever heard someone on the phone talking, but you're only hearing one side of the phone conversation. Mm, right. It's yeah. kind of like sometimes you can pick up what's going on, but if you could hear both sides of the conversation, right. you'd probably be able to like understand a lot more. Like you right, might hear, yeah. you, if you're in a room and the person's talking on the phone, they might say something that sounds very weird. And mm, you're like, I mm-hmm. wonder what on earth they're talking about. But having a yeah. little bit of the background knowledge, having the other side of the conversation will would illuminate that. And yeah. so in a lot of ways, like reading the epistles or any book of the Bible, but the mm-hmm. epistles probably... Mm-hmm. Demon would kind of exemplify this the strongest is yeah. you're, you're kind of getting a one-way communication but there's other factors that are going mm-hmm. on in the audience so mm-hmm. like when paul mm-hmm. writes the galatians they they know what the situation is that right. he's addressing he says oh foolish galatians you know opening the letter and they they would know some of the situation or the corinthians would know the situation yeah and yeah. so it just shows like we don't we aren't privy to those things mm-hmm. in the sense that we don't have a two-way conversation um, but there are kind of things that we can infer and it just shows that we want to do due diligence to try to understand those things as best as possible. Yeah, yeah that's right. So let's, let's quickly illustrate it just so we see it um, in, in the book of Ruth here. Uh, I'll just read even just the very first statement uh, and just, well, let's ask the question, uh, what do we think um, the tone of the author is trying to set in the book? Yeah. Okay, so Ruth 1, just the first statement. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So you can just stop there. Yeah. Is there anything there that you feel like, oh, you, you automatically just pick up a tone? Yeah. I mean, so knowing, so kind of two things stand out. Yeah. One, there's a famine in the land. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Right. Yep. Um, Which we just kind of talked about. Like, yep. uh, that should stand, stand out on us. But added yeah. to that is a little, this is where like, when we even when we say background or context, there's different types of context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's the literary context in terms of like the whole, how it fits into the whole book. There's uh-huh. a historical context. There's even like kind of broader canonical, like the whole yeah. Bible context. Right. Anyways, there's right. kind of layers of different context, right? So like one of the things with famine is like just purely like on a like sociological, like, you know, geographical type. We all, we know famines are bad. Even yeah. if we haven't experienced them, we probably know that's bad. Yeah. But in, in our, another, go ahead. Well, in our context, if, if, if you picked up a, someone's life story or something and it said in the days of the Great Depression, like... We're mm. close enough to it, even though we're we're almost a hundred years yeah, away. Yeah, but it has that stigma, yes. or you might say. Yeah. Yes, and we we can see pictures immediately, probably pop, pop in our mind. Now it's not going to feel as deep to us as someone that was closer, but there you we can get a little bit of that flavor. Yeah, yeah. and so it'd probably be like that. But the other factor too is like so not just like understanding like what a famine is just mm-hmm. factually. Yeah, but also like understanding the biblical broader biblical context. Right. Like yes, you have the like part of the. Um, the curses of the covenant. Right. Like yes. so God makes a covenant with his people. There's blessings for obedience, there's curses for disobedience. Excellent. Like famine yeah. is one of those curses. That's and right. so like you're starting to say, hmm. Mm-hmm. Now like tragedy can just fall on people right. like yeah. without there being like some direct connection to disobedience. Um like just look at the book of Job. Um yep. and yet it starts to raise suspicions. Yeah. Added to that, the second thing that would stand out to me is let's just go with that just so we because yeah. at, at least like at this point, as, if we're just reading and we read there's a famine in the land of Israel, we don't necessarily want to make the conclusion yeah. that they were disobeying God. But it like I like what you're saying. It at least raises the question. Deuteronomy mm-hmm. twenty eight, Leviticus twenty six make it very clear if you obey God's commands. You, you will have fruit in the land. Yep. Uh, you're, you're the the women's uh, the, they will have many children and yep. such. And 
but if you disobey, then there's this list, this like in order of what's going to happen. Yep. Like the sky will become like bronze and the ground will be like iron, I think it is. And then I'll send armies against you. Yep. And then eventually you'll be kicked out of the land. So at least when you read famine, like it, it should at least pop in our head. Yeah. Right. You're, yeah, you're, 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 you're starting to get a, an ominous feeling. Yes. Yeah. The other piece with that, that actually like goes along with that, is then the phrase before that, in the days when the judges ruled, or the oh, judges right. judged. Yeah. Yeah. And if you know the book of Judges, which comes, because um, so this is during that same time frame, so we're kind of imagining what it was like during the judges' time period. And if you know the book of Judges, you know that that was not a very good time to live. Um, the, right. the Israelites were not exactly obeying God very well. Um, they kind of go through this cycle of repenting when things yep. get really bad, yep. but then immediately going right back into their disobedience. And so it starts to also increase the suspicions that, hey, this famine thing, maybe that's due to some of this rebellion during right, the days yeah. of the judges. Yeah. Like yeah. this is a there's instability. The book of Judges closes in our Bibles, Judges comes right before Ruth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's no king in the land. Everyone's doing what's That's right. right in yeah. their own eyes. Yeah. Which is in fact exactly how it <coughs> that the book of Judges ends. So you don't even have to turn it, your, the page in your Bible. Yeah. It, the very last statement of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their, in his own eyes. Which that statement comes up several times throughout the book uh, near the end there. Um, yeah, so I, I agree. So like in order to determine whether or not that flavor is in here, yeah. um, that, that there was rebellion and that's why the famine. I mean, we'd have to find other textual markers, I think, to really land on that heavy. Yeah. Which maybe there are some in the past passage. Yeah. But at least when we read it, those two statements that you're pointing out in the days when judges ruled kind of puts a time stamp on this. Yeah. And a famine. It. It does not set up a really good tone. Yeah, the expectations. Yeah. And here's the thing. We might, I think sometimes in our culture, we like to have firm answers to everything. Mm -hmm. And it may be that the book's not trying to give us a firm answer. It may be just trying to create that sense of uneasiness in you where you're wondering, you know, like, what's that all about? Yeah. And so it may be okay not to like make your, your conclusion is kind of like, "Eh," like, I'm just, that's sketchy. That's sketchy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it might just, you know, you might be able to look at the text and see clear details, but even if nothing else, it does seem it's trying to raise that suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So. Now, even from these, these little details too, yeah. like you can start seeing how some of the other characters in the book get colorized, right? So like Boaz now, I mean, Boaz is going to stand out like this wonderful gem Yeah. because here's a man in Israel who is... A worthy man yeah. who cares for this widow from another country. I mean, all of a sudden he's just like, "Whoa, this this right. guy is not just a nice businessman." This, yeah. Um, as well as again, we want to keep that context of during the time of at least after the time of David, because at the end of the book we have this genealogy coming down to uh, King David was born through this genealogy, yep. and so we're, we're yep. going to want to be asking that question again, like, "What what is this author trying to um, argue to this audience?" During the time of David. Right. So um, one other thing, again, about not overstating it. Uh, here's an example I've liked to use before. Um, you've probably heard the phrase, like, you're full of beans. Um, I think so. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. You're like, you're full of beans. Oh, you know, the uh, Jubilee, are my kids, they watch a Mickey Mouse show. And I think in one of the the closing songs, yeah. they say we're full of beans or something. Okay. I have no idea what yeah. that's talking okay. about. Okay. I think now that you mentioned yeah. it, I have heard that. Okay. So if you heard, if, if you heard me say you're full of beans, what, what do you think? Um, I'm assuming that that's means like I'm, I have no idea, but I would guess it doesn't sound good. And I would guess it means like I'm full of nonsense. Like I'm not making sense. Or yeah. Anything. Yeah. That's the way I understand it too. Okay. Um, so it, it's the sort of statement where, I think most people in our culture, um, if, if you, especially in, given in the context of a conversation and somebody said yeah. that you're full of beans, um, they would know what that phrase is getting at. But if you ask people, where does that phrase come from? Like, where did that originate? You're full of beans. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't, I, I mean, my hypothesis is it was had to do something with like in the marketplace, like trying to sell something and weighing it down with beans or something i have no idea idea. so google says it means lively or in high spirits so well we're way off we're way off yeah is that the only only um where where did the phrase full of beans it doesn't even finish the question in google 
Um, the phrase full of beams seems to have come into popular usage in the mid-1800s and is attributed to a practice of feeding beans to horses as fodder. Supposedly, horses that were fed beans were more energetic and lively. Okay, so we were way off. <laughs> that's uh, that's from Grammarist.com. So I don't know if that's a trust. Uh, so okay, source, so Miriam Webster has as the second one, um, not correct or truthful, full of nonsense. Okay, so maybe so, the liveliness yes. leads you to be a little bit more um, sensational, yeah, and less accurate. I could see those yeah. being related, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So my point is, the origins of that statement, we have no idea where that comes from. Yeah, and nonetheless, we we know what it means. Right? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. Hypothetically, <laughs> depending on the context of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we know what it means. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. All right. So let's let's ask the question then. Okay, if, if if we see that it's at least important, we don't want to overstate it. We don't want to understate it, but it's, it's going to help us be better readers of the text. What do you think will help us spot context better, historical context, or find it, or try to develop that as we read? Yeah. Like what? Um, first, let's talk about what we can do, and then we'll ask about what what we can look for in the text. So, how can we just simply be better readers yeah. uh, of the text by looking, learning historical context? What, yeah, couple, what are some things you can think? Couple of? thoughts, and I'm sure you got more, but a couple thoughts would be reading the text more than once, so yeah, reading yeah. it repeatedly, right? Um, reading it slowly, so you're not just blowing past things, mm, mm-hmm. and then I like to say one of the probably the like probably the most important um tool to becoming a better reader of your bible is yeah. being able to ask good questions of the passage mm, right so right, being right. able to interrogate the passage doesn't mean you even know the answer but you're at least giving That's yourself right. self yeah. an option to think things through. yeah yeah and you may have ideas and thoughts that are helpful yeah um to at least start exploring routes mm-hmm. um even if you remain undecided so yeah. those would be some of the practices yeah. i would think of yeah, I think obviously those are really good. reading your whole bible is going to mm-hmm. start making you more informed about yeah. other about some broader context like for example, the covenant curses. Yes. So if you've read right. Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you, you, you're going to have an opportunity to recall that. Yeah. Um, versus if you haven't. So that's true. Yeah. 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 I think all those are really good. The, the writing it slow. Um, reading it yeah. slow, you mean? Or yeah. Reading it slow. I think because uh, writing is in my mind. Because I, I know like when I do like prep for a sermon. Writing the, the passage Yeah. Out. That's the very first yeah. thing I always do. Yeah. Um, it, it just forces you to look at every word. And I'm not arguing that that's what people should do every time they read their Bible. But it's write helpful. It out, but yeah. it's helpful. I find that even if I thought I read through the passage slowly, if I, because I, before I write it out, I'll t- typically have read it and I'm starting to think about it. But then when I, because I do the same thing oftentimes for a sermon, if I start to write it out, it's like, even though I thought I knew the yeah. passage, you just start to notice things. That's right. Because yeah. you're forcing your, I think part of it is that we're bodily people. And so getting your body involved too has mm-hmm. like proven benefits for yeah. learning. Yeah, that's true. And so. Yeah. And it, uh, along with this one, one exercise I've done, I think we've done this before together in groups where like, we'll read it together sim- somewhat like this practice, this professor did, but we'll read it. And then we close our Bibles, have one person have the Bible open and the rest of the group tries to retell this. Yeah, the the passage and see what you missed. Yeah, because it, it just forces your your brain to, to slow down on all the parts. So I think reading slowly or thoughtfully. Yeah. You know, um, and what was the other one you mentioned? The last one. Um, slowly, repetitiously, asking questions. Oh yeah, yeah, just asking questions. And again, I think for that, it's just it's just forcing yourself to slow down and yeah, and it's a way to force yourself to think more deeply that's right. and yeah. try to think why was this said. Yeah, you know. Yeah, the only the only other two things that pop in my head is is reading the Bible with other people. <coughs> oh yeah, you know, it, uh, that can be very helpful. Even though, like you and I are are very similar in some sense, you grew up in a very different culture than I did. In the sense of, I mean, we both grew up in Wisconsin, uh, both I guess probably like around middle class. Yeah, but you lived out more in the middle of nowhere. Yep. I lived in a suburb. Yep. And even just those little things can be helpful. Or if you talk with someone that grew up on a farm or you talk with someone that grew up in the Eastern culture, read 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 the scriptures with different types of people. Yeah. Uh, even like when I read with with my wife, she's just a much better reader in, uh, the, in narrative as well as poetry than myself. And I do better in the epistles. Yeah, like in, if you're more analytical. Pro- or, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so like doing that, can you can really help one another. So I, I think that's one of the 
best things we can do for like really being better readers of a Bible, and it will help in this category uh, immensely. And then you you know you get you get yourself a good study Bible, ESV study Bible. Even just reading the introduction can give you a lot. Yeah, uh, the introduction to a book. You know, yeah, like a good resource. So obviously, there's more in depth ones like commentaries, but like ones that are cost effective and accessible to the average person would be like a good study Bible where it's going to be able to, it's good. You're going to have material. You're going to make one purchase and you're going to be able to have background information, yeah. introductory information on every book of the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Um, that I know there's another one that's good to the, uh, I think it's called the biblical theology study Bible it used to be okay. called like the NIV study Bible or something like mm-hmm. that. I did it mm-hmm. by DA Carson. Okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah those yeah. are probably some of the two better ones. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so those are just like practices that we can do. Um, in terms of things that we can look for, uh, we'll, I mean, we'll just say this piece and then move past it. But obviously asking about the author and the audience, who, what, where, when, why type, types of situation um, questions are, are good. Yeah. But let's focus a little <laughs> bit more on um, as you're looking in a passage, uh, what are things that you think we could have an eye out for? That could help us pick up some historical things that would be helpful. Hmm. So um, let's just kind of go through some of those types of things that that might might help us really paint a picture of the historical context. Yeah, and probably some of it depends on the genre of scripture too. That's but a good if I'm point. thinking That's like narrative, like yeah, I think it's like Old Testament narrative, especially mm-hmm. like geography is going to yeah. matter a lot yeah. because geography matters. Period. When you're reading yep. something, but think about Israel too, where yep. they're in the promised land. Like land has a very important meaning right. to a lot of the people there and the tribes. And so, yeah. like getting yourself a map and yep. like like myself, I've been to Israel, I've been to seminary, mm-hmm. and even I feel like there's a lot of things that I yeah. probably miss. And so, like, but just trying to be more aware of like some of those geographical yeah. um, important markers. Yeah, that's that's a good. I mean, two examples that pop in my head. One um, from the book of Judges that we're preparing for. Uh, at the end of the book, you have that the tribe of Dan going to get get some land because they still haven't been able to uh, acquire acquire their yeah. inheritance. So they end up going to an uh, like if 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 we hadn't looked at a map when Nick and I were reading it, um, it just we were at least like where where are they going and realized that they were going way away from their inheritance to try to take over this land. You're like, oh really? Wow, yeah. like. That that's different, you know. Like, what are they doing? What are they doing over there? Yeah. yeah. So that would be an example. Also, here in the book of Ruth, um, you know, there's this famine, and suddenly uh, Naomi's husband and Naomi they take their family to Moab. Moab. Yeah. And so at least just you just go where where is Moab? What do we know about Moab and things like that? Yeah. You and so even just realizing, if you even if you don't know a whole lot, you realize, oh, Moab is not the land of Israel. Right. You yes. Know? Yeah. So like, and 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 maybe knowing some of the background of that would be helpful. So you mm-hmm. know, like they're they're becoming sojourners in another yeah. land that's yeah. not their own. That's right. So with geography, then, uh, if we can just park on that a little bit more, because it's not only just on a map, but even like asking, like, what do we know about those people? Yeah. What is that culture? So this Moab one would be a good example because, um, you know, some of the more recent encounters in the biblical storyline uh, are not good with Moab, right? That's yeah. where uh, Balaam uh, or Balak, the king of Moab, uh, yeah. had tried Hires to have Balaam, Balaam yeah. to Curse bring them. curses on yeah. Israel. Uh, and it was in uh, uh, Moab that, if you remember, uh, Balaam couldn't curse uh, the people of Israel, but then he eventually went back to the king Balak and said, "Well, basically said, hey, look, I got a plan yeah, B here. That's right. Yeah, I might not be able to curse we them, can't curse them, but they can bring the curse on themselves. Right. So here's what you should do: take some of your women and have them sort of like entice the Seduce, men. Yeah, and that's what they did. And then they brought the curse upon Israel. So that's 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 sort of like in the background of Moab. Uh, and you're like, oh, that doesn't sound uh, great. Yeah, what's yeah. going on here? Yeah, last time, like last time, we had an interaction with them. It didn't go so right. Much. Yeah. Yes. Um, good. So that would be geography would be a great thing. Um, any any other things pop in your head? I think um, maybe like customs. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think maybe um, customs mm. or like rituals. Yeah. So, like, even thinking about things like temples and shrines right, and yeah. priests and yeah. just, like, being aware of some of those, like, some of the mores and, yeah, yeah practices. Yeah, that's good. And then, and so you're asking, like, are they, are they good? Are they bad? When, yeah. when they're talking about them, you know? Um, so, like, 
for example, in the Book of Ruth here in the opening. Um, actually, why don't we read this first paragraph? Because I think sure. we can use this as, an, as examples. Yeah. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Good. Um, yeah, so in terms of customs, here we have in uh, activities, what they're doing, um, you know, we asked the question about sojourning to the land of Moab would be a good question to ask. Like, was that a good thing? Is he, is that a good thing for a man to do, to, to take his family there? We might not know the answer, but at yeah. least it, I, I like what you said before, just asking the question, what, what was was that right of him? Yeah, and then as well, like if you see in the text, it's not that they just sojourn. Sojourn is like passing through, right? You're just kind of like here for a short time and yeah, heading yeah. heading somewhere else. Uh, by the end of this paragraph, they were there for ten years. Yeah, so it doesn't sojourning turned into something else eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, as well as they they intermarry, they they took Moabite wives, and we should just ask for, according to customs, is that. Is, is that, that a wise yeah. thing? Should they be doing that? Especially, for them to do, yeah. especially given what, what we know about the last time we really heard about the Moabites and an interaction with their women right. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. There's <laughs> other customs that we see in the book. Uh, the uncovering of Boaz's feet yep. that happens. What's going on there? Yep. Uh, the gleaning, even, you know, that's just a normal part of life. Like, or when they're at, in chapter four, when they're at the city gate and... It takes off, take the off sandal. the sandal yeah. and you're that's like, what's right. that all about? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's just some of these sort of things um, that might not even like really give us a whole lot to go on uh, in understanding the text, but there's, learning to spot things like that can be helpful. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, how about uh, another thing would be like events and the significance of the events. Uh, so the, the Gospel of John pops into my mind it's about... Uh, uh, and my minds, I only have one mind, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's oftentimes these festivals that are happening. Yeah. And, uh, so I've heard some argue that the book is outlined according to the festivals mm. and just asking like, why this festival? What, what, why this activity at this festival? Yeah. Uh, but we, the book of Ruth also has like these, uh, the harvest happening. Yeah. Uh, so at the, at the end of, uh, chapter one, the harvest is about to begin chapter two, there is a harvest. Chapter three, the harvest is ending, and they're when he's at the threshing, threshing floor. floor. Yeah, what that would have meant. Yeah, yeah. and now <clears throat> maybe, may, I mean, like, I don't want to put you totally on the spot, but I, I will. Like, well, how do you think <laughs> that can help us in reading uh, about this widow and her daughter-in-law? Which part? The 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 harvesting and the time of the time of year, as if you've tracked the story, and now you get to the end of harvest in chapter three. Yeah, I mean, so you notice in chapters, uh, I believe it's chapter two, right, where she's able to glean in the field. And so there is ability to have provision, mm -hmm. you know, assuming that um, Boaz and her men and his men are, are allowing her to do that. And now that the harvest time is coming to a close, you know, where are they going to get their, their food going forward? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They're in a right. desperate yes, position right. because some of the other background pieces to keep in mind is even that paragraph that we read. There's kind of this, um, there's no children mentioned. Right. We're seeing a barrenness that's kind yeah, of assumed right. in the text. And that may not, I mean, barrenness is a sad thing in mm -hmm, our culture, mm -hmm. but it's a really a devastating yeah, thing good point. in that culture. Yeah, that's right. Um, because economically, like women weren't working then. Right. And so not being able to have children, like it would have been much more of a stigma than yep, yep. a lot of times people would assume there was something wrong with you morally because right. you weren't able to have children. Like right. it was a reflection of God's curse. Um, it also fits with a general pattern throughout the Bible of women who aren't able to have children and God works miraculously. Mm -hmm. God is mm -hmm. continually, mm -hmm. do, continually doing that in the line of Jesus mm -hmm. to kind of 
one way is to demonstrate he's the one who fulfills the promise of the seed mm. crusher. Yeah. Um, that is by his grace that he does these things. Um, so there's just a lot of like, just understanding their plight as widows. Yeah. Desperate economically coming to the end of the, of that period. And That's so they right. kind of make a, they kind of make a, a Hail Mary toss when you get to chapter three and, and she, and Ruth approaches Boaz right. at the threshing floor. Um, kind of a dangerous move you might say. Right, right. Yeah, and it, you're exa- you're exactly right. I mean, those are it's, a, it's sort of a detail that you know neither one of us are in an agricultural society. Yeah. So it's sort of like I mean, the end of harvest season. If we're gardening, it's like okay, I'll go to the grocery yeah, store. Yeah, I'll go to Woodman's <laughs> next week. You yeah. know, instead of picking my own tomatoes, it's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, but it's a very significant part of the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, another thing that we can look for is like time indicators. And you pointed one out earlier uh, in the time when the judges ruled. So yeah. that would be one. Also, maybe when we think about the characters in the story, they're the timeline of their own life. So as you read First Samuel 16, um, when David's being anointed as a young boy or a young man to be king, but he's not actually king uh, compared to like you know, second Samuel 12 or something like that when he's reigning. Yeah. Um, And just like kind of trying to make sure we know what's going on with the time markers, both of the characters and of the chronological history of, uh, of redemption. And so we get a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth, for example, which shows that this story has significance in its own right, but then also has significance in terms of a broader um, scheme. Right. Yeah. Program of God. Yeah. Connecting to David specifically. That's right. Which then kind of connects to the judges theme. There's no king. Right. Lo and behold, Ruth ends with this king. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Another thing we could look for would be like measurements or numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Those types, those types of uh, descriptions. Um, So you, you think of um, measurements, say like in the book of Revelation, um, there's actually some in here about like, uh, what is it? An ephah, ephah a flower, and then you have cubits in Revelation. Like, yeah. what? But, yeah. I'm like, I read that and I'm like, what's an ephah? Yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Is that big or small? I like, know. And I, I can't remember how many it is, but it's like a lot of pounds actually yeah. that she's carrying. Yeah. And like when you, if, um, if you, if they translated it that way for us, like you, you would read that part of the story and be like, whoa, dude, I, I can't <laughs> remember. must be pretty strong. Yeah. I yeah. think it was like 50 or 70 pounds or something like that. Just, I want to say the, a lot of wheat. I want to say the NLT, um, the New Living Translation. Yeah, that's will, where I feel like that translation can be really because they they will convert it for yeah. you. That so. that happens also in like the Book of Revelation where it talks about the the New Jerusalem being twelve thousand stadia by twelve thousand stadia. You're like, oh, stadia, okay, sounds pretty good. So the intro, <laughs> you know, what, how long is that? But when you uh, when you realize that it's about fourteen hundred miles by fourteen hundred miles, like that's from Milwaukee to. Uh, what 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 did I say? Somewhere in Florida. That? Yeah, somewhere. Four Myers yeah, or I think it was Fort Myers. Yeah, which is a massive city. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's it is the NLT, right? Or is it the yeah? Only the NLT the NLT does it. Yeah, I can't I can't find uh, the one in Ruth off the top of my head here, but yeah, okay. They do translate it to like pounds and probably feet and yards and things like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. Also, I think some of the use of language of some of the metaphors and stuff like that uh, can be helpful to try to pause, uh, especially ones that we just clearly don't understand and go like, what is going on there? Like Song of Solomon would probably be a good example. That's right. That's of a right. lot of the images yeah. it uses for like ro- things that are romantic. Yeah. And like, yeah. They're like, if I said that to my wife, I don't think she would take that the <laughs> yeah. same way. Yeah. One of them is like, uh, you're like one of the mirrors of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's chariot. Like you're like one of the horses. Of the king, and you're like that's uh, a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but your you're neck right. is it's like been... a tower or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, uh, a couple other things that I would probably point out to, to be paying attention to would be like values, um, what what the what the culture values. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, just even like keeping the in the back of our minds, uh, a lot of the culture that we're reading in the in the text is more of a community driven culture yeah. versus individualistic. Right. So a lot of the commands that we read are meant to be for the community. Yeah. A lot of things are communal, not just individualistic, which we, yeah. we turn them into individualistic. Yeah. I was going to mention that. Like when we read the epistles, like the letters in the new Testament and we read all these commands about Christian living, we tend to, we tend yeah. to think of them in like our own personal, like I'm going to carry these things out. Yeah. But you remember like they're written to a church. They would have been read, you know, in a, in a worship service, presumably, to the entire church. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes they're even stated in, like, 
you all language or, or you know like we so that it's meant to be like we're going to do this together yes so yeah. we have that tendency we're in an individualistic society versus a collectivist that's society, right yeah. so we tend to take it that way that's right and even you see something happen in the book of ruth that i think would just throws us for a loop right? at yeah. the end of the book who's naming the child remember yeah. it's it's the women of the community. You're <laughs> yeah. like, what? Why are they like, doing that? Yeah. They don't have that kind of authority. Could you imagine if we did that today? Like one of the ladies in our church gives birth. Yeah. And like a bunch of women from the church go into the right, hospital right. room and we're like, we decided to name your kid this. Yeah. We'd be like, that's, I don't think that's something you do. Yeah. Right. That's right. Um, another thing like would be like hospitality. This isn't necessarily um, in Ruth here, but like hospitality. Uh, is a major deal yeah. um, in that this culture uh, where it's not as big of a deal in our culture. So yeah. there's certain things that we don't pick up on necessarily. In fact, you know, in, in the book of Ezekiel, um, when God like recounts of why Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Was destroyed. Yeah. yeah. We, what do we typically think? Yeah. We typically think, oh, like we have a, we have a name for this sin. It's yeah. called sodomy. Right. Yeah. We think of like That's homosexual right. acts and things like that. Yeah. But what does, in Ezekiel, what does he specifically highlight as their sin? Yeah. It was the lack of hospitality. Yeah. And, and you think when the angels showed up, they just left them sitting there in the square. Yeah. And so in their mind, it's like, well, of course, if they're not willing to be hospitable of there's no telling what they would be like yeah they'll even abuse their visitors in horrible sexual ways yeah and so yeah even to show like that i i think in that one book that we were mentioning the scriptures western eyes they show that as like other cultures will more immediately notice that i actually have a story on hospitality a pastor friend of mine um there was a lady i think she was from somewhere in africa who came to the states for college i want to say and she like came up to the his church. Their church has a building, and came up to the church building and was like with like a letter from her church in Africa, and was like, "I'm here to study," and I'm she's a believer, and she's like, "I'm looking to get housing and help from folks in your church." Yeah, like it was an expectation of like, right, "Show me right. hospitality." I'm here. Yeah, um, as believers, we take care of each other, and mm-hmm. he was just kind of like taken back because we don't do that, you know. Like, yeah. if we had a, someone who was going to school in another state, we would. They would kind of presumably they get their own housing and all this stuff. Yeah. But they were kind of still working from that assumption of like, well, of course you show how you give housing and help a fellow believer. Yeah. I mean, even like second John and third John talk about it's all about like showing hospitality to believers and refusing to show that same sort of hospitality to like um, someone who is promoting a false gospel. Yeah. Not assisting them in that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. It reminds me of a, I can tell this really quick, but it's very similar. Like um, uh, one of the trans when we were in uh, Ethiopia, the, the translator that we had, um, his wife also worked full time, and so therefore, because both of them worked full time, they hired uh, I forget what they called her. I don't I don't know if she was a live in helper or uh, just she came in kind of like a help. nanny though. Yes. Um, and so we were talking to him about it, and he said, that's what you you have to. That's part of the expectation. Because it's like, there's not an empty bucket of money. If she's if my wife is taking one of the one of the jobs out there, sure. then we have to then take it and provide oh, yeah, another person sure. with it. Because in, like, in our capitalist society, we tend to think that money has like, there's like an infinite amount of it. Like we right. can always create yes. more wealth. That's right. Like you create, we talk about creating jobs. Yeah. And, like, and of course, there's a certain truth to kind of that perspective yeah. of like, Probably the wealth in our society has actually gone up since like more like you think of feudalism and agricultural type Mm -hmm, societies. mm -hmm. But like in a lot of other cultures, it's kind of seen like wealth is like there's just a it's like a static amount. And so to take more for someone to just accumulate wealth, it's more like seen as obviously not a good thing. Because by definition, you're taking money from other Taking from the bucket. Yeah, taking like the bucket doesn't grow. It's just state. It's not endless. Right. Yes. And so like we can easily like kind of soften some of the passages of scripture on wealth and the accumulation right. of wealth and greed because we have an assumption that like, well, it's not a big deal to be, yeah. to just kind of accumulate all that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good point. And then the last category I would, I would throw out for us or throw in, throw on the table for us to consider would be things that go without saying. Um, and that is to say that just because the text doesn't actually say it doesn't mean that the author isn't actually hinting at it or that assuming that you could pick this up. Yeah. For example, in our context, if uh, I had a friend from high school, I came to faith uh, at 23. So I have a friend from high school that that we, you know, did all sorts of like wrong things together, right? Before you're let's, a believer. Before I'm yeah. a believer, yeah. Like now let's say 
this this week. Uh, he he's I don't know how to turn that off. <laughs> this week he is um, getting married this weekend, and you see on Facebook that he invites me to go down to Vegas with him for the week for, for a bachelor for party. a bachelor party, like one like one final uh, time wow. before I get married. Right um, now, if I say no, I'm not doing that. Like I like no. Whatever. Not, yeah. Um, yeah. You, I'm, I'm guessing, would be like, good. I'm glad Dan's not going there. If, in, in <laughs> fact, if it was the other way, yeah. you'd probably be calling me right away. Be like, dude, what are you what doing? Are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's talk about this first, right? But if somebody from another culture who doesn't know what Vegas is, yeah, has heard or that maybe I, even a bachelor party, or yeah, and what yeah. that often entails. Yeah, that's right. And they were like, you're not going to go celebrate with your old friend yeah like oh, you're, how a, you're rude. a terrible yeah. friend yeah for not celebrating right. his marriage yeah so there's things like that that can go left without saying but actually are, are part of the part of the meaning of the passage now yeah. this has to be an educated assumption so it's not like we just kind of make things up out of thin air or something right. um dan's a very popular guy <laughs> but so we we, we want to use as much textual markers as we can to to point this out um, but take, for example, this one that you were talking about earlier, this famine in the land. Yeah. Um, that would be a, a, what we could do there and say it's going without saying that he's painting a picture of a judgment of God on Israel. Now, it might not be right, but take, for example, by the end of the chapter, Ruth seems to, to read it that way, where she, where she says that God's hand... Uh, the the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Or you mean Naomi? Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Naomi. Naomi, because yes. then she says, "Call me Mara," which yes. means bitter. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So so Naomi seems to have that reading on it. Yeah. So it, if if you know Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, as well as the time of, <laughs> of the judges, what's happening there, and you take Naomi's reading of the situation, you can start to see a picture that even though the the author has not said the judgment of God was on. Uh, Elimelech, her husband, yeah. for taking the people away from the land, who Elimelech's name means God is my king. Yeah. Um, and then they, they go and marry these Moabite women. Um, he has never said that's the judgment of God. Yeah. But you can start to see where you can get there. Yeah. You could definitely see how at the very minimal, uh, Naomi would interpret it that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, so other things that that would go left without saying at times could be say uh, at the end of the chap at the end of the book um, the first kinsman redeemer is not named yeah and names are important especially in that culture so he doesn't even the fact that he doesn't even get a name is yeah. like I mean especially in the book right that's right um, Elimelech or Elimelech like Eli yep. so God is my Melech king yep. you know from Naomi which is pleasant I believe to yeah. Mara bitter yeah. like names are really important yeah and so. Um, for someone to not get named is kind of to show like, yeah, this guy's not even worth naming. That's right. Yeah. 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 In fact, that uh, I believe it's the Net Bible. They translate it something like Mr. So-and-so. Uh, yeah. Because like the that. Hebrew, I remember I remember yeah. studying that. Like the Hebrew is kind of like the idea of like, it's uh, this somebody guy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so it just goes without saying that that's what he's trying to do without naming yeah. that character. Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Any other uh, major things that's, help, that's, that's helpful to cover when we're thinking about context? Um, I, th- I think that covers it for now, I think. Cool. Do you know what we're talking about next time? Um, I think we're doing melodic line. Okay. Uh, which would be kind of trying to see the the um, theme or claim of the, the overall book. message of an entire book. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we look forward to catching up with you all then. Thanks.